back. The first discast that I am recording in my little beat shack in Provincetown, which is just marvelous. I got here on Memorial Day and it was a gorgeous day. And I, I just, I've just been giddy really for the last couple of days. I, I just, I am so lucky to live in this crazy little town for four months of the year. It's, it's beautiful. Friends I've had for like 30 years here. I don't know. I am lucky as hell. I'm aware of it. My, my, my daily theme these days is gratitude. Just remembering each day what we have to be grateful for. And as I said that, I could see that Bob Wright, my guest, my esteemed guest, an old colleague, had a wry smile on his face when I said gratitude. But a wry smile on his face is, is the normal mode of being for Bob Wright. He is, if you do not know, a journalist and author of many books, including The Moral Animal, which I really do think was one of the most influential books in my own life, reading Non-Zero, The Evolution of God, which is probably the second, one of the most other most influential books on my thinking, and Why Buddhism is True. He's written for countless magazines, including The New Republic, where he co-wrote the TRB column back in the day, with his podcast colleague, Mickey Kaus, the absolutely indefatigable, uh, irrepressible Mickey Kaus. God bless him. And the two of them have what I think and have said before is one of the best podcasts you could possibly listen to if you like two cranky old dudes <laughs> talking about the world with levels of irony and sophistication and general mayhem that uh, is hard to find anywhere else in the world. And he has his own substack, of course, non-zero newsletter. And you can, he also started blogging ads. He's, he's has the right show and the parrot room, which is their super exclusive members only cognoscenti, which only the true movers and shakers in Washington and elsewhere listen to, but you are allowed to pay too, if you want. So I urge you all, I listen to it most weeks to Bob and Mickey. I, I like listening to old friends banter on, but they're also incredibly knowledgeable and extremely intelligent and and funny so bob with that rather glowing intro thanks for coming on well thank you for, that was a very lavish introduction i it's i'm almost sad to hear it come to an end but i'm a big obviously i don't want to fawn on you but it, i'm a big fan and one of the issues i found kind of you've been helpful on in, in helping me think through some of these the questions involved is our current war our current war there. That was a Freudian slip, wasn't it? The current war in Ukraine, which we are now kind of up to our necks in, in terms of our supplies anyway, of military equipment to Ukraine. Bob, why do you think the war broke out? Well, that's an interesting question. And these days you discuss that at your peril, because if you if you argue that America made missteps and mismanaged the relationship with Russia in a way that increased the chances of war, people may call you a Putin apologist or say you're reciting Putin talking points. So I think it's important to say at the outset that, you know, we should be able to have a, an honest discussion about the causes of war without the fear that that discussion will remove the blame from Putin's shoulders. And as you 
may know I'm kind of a stickler for international law. I talk about it a lot. I encourage American compliance with it a lot to no avail by and large, but still I encourage it. And one virtue of emphasizing international law is that in this case, there's no doubt who violated international law. Putin did. And whatever you think about the role of things like NATO expansion in the run-up to the war, those things don't violate international law. So there's no doubt who broke the law here. It's Putin. He's responsible. And, you know, so, so the discussion we have about what mistakes America may have made does not threaten, you know, to, to remove the blame from his shoulders. I just want to be clear about that. Absolutely. And I think that's where one always starts. And I think the attempt to discredit attempts to understand how we got there by saying you're just a, a Putin apologist, a, a sort of intellectually unfair. I mean, just as, for example, the only person responsible in Uvalde is the shooter, we right. are still perfectly capable of discussing ways in which we might have had policy that might have better prevented it. We are perfectly able to criticize the conduct of the police. This is all... And it doesn't mean that the guy who did it didn't do it or doesn't bear complete moral responsibility for the act. So, but not just you, of course, but plenty of other people, especially the most old hand Russia people, um, warned in the post-Cold War period that Russia probably could not be understood as a normal power, that it was essentially as an imperial project, Russia. And that it regards, and Russians have always regarded Ukraine as really one part of their broader fatherland. And that is the context in which several people, George Kennan most famously, urged passionately that we should not push the Russians too far in the wake of their essentially historic humiliation in the 1990s. Right. Well, I think there's a couple of things you can say. I, I, I mean... Even if you don't assume that Russia is inordinate in, it, in its kind of imperialistic drive or whatever, you can argue that we should have expected that various things we've done, including NATO expansion and specifically including putting Ukraine on the list of, of you know, future NATO members, would have you know, created a real sense of threat on, on the Russia side. And also, as you suggest, you know, a sense of, of humiliation because Russia was kind of a declining power. You know, they lost the Cold War. That's a fact. So I think just just, you know, even if you start out assuming that they're psychologically more or less like us, you should worry about, you know, you should you should tread carefully because, you know, I listened to your podcast with Dan Applebaum and I thought you did a good job of kind of pushing back. And saying, wait a second, if we were in their shoes, I, I mean, you know, a, a good comparison is, is Mexico, really. If, if Mexico announced tomorrow that they were leaving NAFTA and they wanted to join some trade association with China. Oh, and by the way, they, they were, they were going to become formal military allies of China. And China would be sending weapons in and some advisors and maybe down the road some troops. I mean, we wouldn't put up with that for a minute. It would not happen. And so... Even without getting into the, you know, the distinctive aspects of Russian history or Putin psychology, I think there are clear reasons to tread carefully. 
Now, once you get into those things, into Russian history and Putin psychology, that's all the more reason to, to tread carefully. You know, it's kind of ironic that of the people who don't want to re-examine America's role in all this, depict Putin as, you know, kind of crazy or bizarre in his ambitions or something. Well, that's all the more reason to think twice, right? I mean, you know, to get back to you, you were making a comparison with domestic law, right? The Uvalde case, right? Like, well, you know, if your neighbor loses a job and you see his wife downtown having drinks in a hotel lobby with some good looking guy, and you know your neighbor's inclined to drink, and you know he owns a gun, you know he has a temper, you don't, and, and, then if, and then if you say, oh, by the way, you know, I'm sorry you lost your job, by the way, I saw your wife having drinks with a handsome man in a hotel, you know, if some Saturday night he goes crazy and shoots her, you're not legally responsible, but those things you knew about him were all the more reason not to do what you did. So, one, I, one, uh, go ahead. One way in which Russia could have understood its defeat in the Cold War is by separating its own nationality from Soviet communism, right? by treating that period as a sort of alien period in Russian history where, and that we're now returning to Russia. But what I found, and that's how I could have conce conceived of it as it happened. It's like, great, the, that horrible ideology and that police state all the rest of it is going to be dismantled. And now we might have, and I was trying to think, what kind of Russia emerges from that? Because the last thing we knew was Tsarist Russia in terms of that. And, it, and the thing that has come back to me a lot is that, in fact, the notion of Russia and its imperial ambitions as an imperial nation, as kind of in, inherently expansionist thing, which it's always kind of been insofar as it's been a country, is actually pretty deep and was pretty deep behind Soviet rationality as well. This was about Russia throwing its weight around in its region. It was, but again, I mean, is that, you know, we, I, I don't personally, although, you know, my foreign policy views do align with those of some people kind of on the fairly far left. And for that matter, in some ways, of people on the fairly far right. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm very much kind of pro-restraint in terms of American military intervention. But one thing I don't generally do the people on the left do is use the word imperialism a lot to describe American foreign policy, because I don't think it's literally imperialistic in the traditional sense. At the same time, we have thrown our, our weight around well beyond our borders, and we do consider things threatening that are well beyond our borders. So I, I guess, you know, I think I, I, I don't feel a need in, in trying to explain what Putin did to resort to a deep-seated Russian imperialistic impulse. But it may, it may be there. And, and Especially, it seems, with respect to Ukraine, which seems to have this very special role. And maybe Belarus is also yeah. there. But obviously, because Kiev is, you know, in some ways civilizationally prior to Moscow, that the, 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 the kingdom of Rus came from there, there is this sense that, that there is some singular unit that they can't quite absorb being, being different. And, you know, I, I, the analogy I drew was sort of Britain and Northern Ireland, which is there you have contiguous territory. You have uh, clearly an imperial project, if you want to think of it that way. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's not naturally the same place. It wasn't originally inhabited by the same groups of people. 
But the British have not let go of it. It's, and it's still there. And in fact, although the British at this point could give a damn, I think, it's an inheritance that if it were peremptorily taken from them, would piss them off. Sure. And so sure. I don't think the mentality of this is completely lacking in understanding. However, of course, you don't send troops in, you don't wage war on the place, let alone this kind of war that is so unbelievably seems seem, seems to be disastrous. I want to I've I've heard an argument recently that the manner in which the Russians have conducted this war, which is grotesque in so many ways, that has altered the perception of the war and our understanding of the war has shifted it from a, a kind of strategic understanding to a moral understanding. How, do, how would you respond to that idea? The fact that they're committing war crimes means that somehow, for some reason, well, not for those reasons, the West, broadly speaking, has to, has to fight now to defeat them entirely. Oh, well, I mean, as for defeating them entirely, you know, I'm, I'm personally very torn by this because, you know, being a a big booster of international law, I want them to wind up with no positive reinforcement for this adventure. At the same time, you have to recognize that they have nuclear weapons. And this is the reason I think we should have uh, tread more carefully to begin with, one reason. And I, I think the idea of complete and utter defeat, in other words, pushing them back beyond the February 24th borders, you know, trying to take Crimea back and all of the Donbass, I just think that's too risky. And that's why I would not, if I were Biden, I would not give them these weapons with no no strings attached in the sense of some kind of understanding about what would be good enough for them in terms of an enduring peace deal. I mean, you have to put yourself in, in Putin's shoes. And again, this is like kind of a triggering phrase for some people. When you start talking about putting yourself in the shoes of, of somebody who, is, who has done something like this, they think you want to, you know, feel their pain and stuff. And I don't want to feel his pain. I, I don't care about his pain, but I do want to understand what he's up to, what he's likely to do. In other words, I want to exercise cognitive empathy, but not necessarily emotional empathy. And from his point of view, it, it isn't that pushing things back to the pre-2024 borders would be an existential threat for Russia. But I think you would see it as an existential threat for his regime. It would sufficiently raise the chances of a palace coup or some other grave misfortune for him that he might do any number of things to keep it from happening. I even think that may be true of, of getting things back to the February 24th borders, right? Because he told his people that at kind of at a minimum, he would wind up with these two, you know, Donetsk and Luhansk, these two kind of provinces in the Donbass. So I'm not sure how easy it is for him to swallow anything short of that without resorting to extreme measures. But I certainly think you're playing with fire if you try to take um, Crimea away. And by the way, I think most people in Crimea do not want it, it taken away from him. That's a, a pretty deeply ethnically Russian place. And of course, much of the you know eastern Ukraine is in some sense ethnically Russian, although I think by now he may have alienated a number of ethnic Russians. But you, you do need to understand all this in, in terms of trying to figure out what will happen. And if I can just say one more thing about mm -hmm. this cognitive empathy thing, it may seem to people like there, there are more urgent things to do right now than revisit the question of whether we made mistakes leading up to this. And there certainly are. But what concerns me is that I think the generic 
mistake we made was not putting ourselves in Putin's shoes, in the shoes of the Russian people, understanding how they view the world, understanding what would be viewed as as a threat or an unacceptable slight or show of disrespect. I think we failed to do that. I think we are bad at that. I think America's bad at that generally, and I don't think we can afford to keep being bad at it. I think if we don't start doing a better job of that with China, I mean, we the world could be in a in a world of trouble. And so, and 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 you can see that right now, what's happening is people like me who want to. There's an attempt to basically stigmatize any analysis of, of mistakes we may have made, you know, by by calling people Putin apologists or whatever else. And so, you you can see that this moment may be lost, right? And we may not take advantage of it to learn some lessons that we could apply very fruitfully in the future. I really, so I really think we have to dwell on this. That's my sermon. Yeah, practically speaking, if Putin is going to gain any ground from 2014 in this war, the argument would be, and I and I, I know you're torn about this, I'm torn about it. It's a genuine question here now that he's initiated conflict. If he's able to say we just accomplished a little, what is to stop him coming back and asking for more in due course? What is to stop him from using the occupation of Luhansk and Donetsk as a springboard for what he clearly wanted at the get-go, which he's demonstrated quite clearly, takeover of the entire country. Well, I think by now some disincentives are in place. <laughs> I, I mean, for example, these are the multiple rocket launchers that apparently Biden is going to give Ukraine, they have a range of like 50 miles. And although the Ukrainians have said, you know, they're not going to use them for that. My understanding is they can also either them or systems very much like them. I think those systems can be equipped with rockets. that will go like 150, 180 or something. And so I think we've got his attention in terms of how much destructive power we can put in the hands of Ukraine. And, you know, if the conventional assessments of the amount of the amount of damage that's been incurred by the Russian military are accurate, you know, near term, certainly, I, I don't think he's going to be up for a lot more adventurism. I, I do think we have to be mindful of the possibility that he could make uh, kind of a last lurch for Odessa or something, because I think he is a spiteful person and he would love to leave Ukraine a landlocked country. I don't think we can afford to forget about things like that right now. But I think his, his told, weapon, of course, is also the blockade in yeah. the Black Sea. So he's that's a pretty powerful piece of leverage in terms of his own regime and its propaganda. There is every reason for him to continue. Any obvious defeat is very dangerous for him internally and in terms of Russian public opinion. So what is to stop this thing? Just keep intensifying. What is to stop this thing happening, which we provide more weapons and they come back, then we have to provide more until this thing really gets out of control. And that's the worry. We have an open conflict in the heart of Europe with no apparent means of de-escalating it. And in fact, plenty of ways in which it is escalating. And, and I can't see at this point any solution that would satisfy both sides. Can you, can you imagine Zelensky giving away Donbass and, and uh, the whole Donbass region. I mean, I can imagine him saying, okay, Crimea is gone. That makes yeah. sense to me. But to, and then to keep the place with this land bridge from Crimea into Russia, that's also a problem for him. He could be surrounded and cut off. Yeah. Well, well, 
I think there are other problems. I mean, right now the Russians occupy Kherson, which is on the other side of the Dnieper River. That's not part of the Donbass. It's not part of those two provinces. And they, they have some other land north of Crimea that's not part of those two provinces. So we're a long way from even, you know, asking Ukraine to settle for leaving Russia with the Donbass. Of course, Russia doesn't have all the Donbass yet, but it looks like they will soon have all of Luhansk and, and it may be that it's within their power to secure all of Donetsk before long. You would hope that at that point, Putin at least would want to stop and talk because he would have secured the minimum politically acceptable objectives and then some really because he does have these troops in other places as well. But so you would think he would be up for talking. And at that point, the U.S. may have to apply some pressure to Ukraine. I just don't buy the argument that we're not allowed to do that. I think we, we are giving them massive support, much of which they couldn't get from anywhere else. And whenever you give anyone anything, you have a right to attach conditions. That's just a fundamental principle. Except in that op-ed in The New York Times yesterday, Biden specifically said, whatever Ukraine says is what we will support. That's the line. And that's what Tony Blinken's been saying from the beginning. And I hope that's not the truth. I hope that's something they think they have to say for political reasons. I mean, he did say he got them to agree to not fire these rockets into Russian territory. That's something. But I hope there there's more discussion going on behind the scenes than we know, because what what Zelensky has, has committed to publicly, I just don't think is compatible with ending the war anytime soon, as, as you know. I mean, th those Russians are not leaving Crimea without a grave threat to the planet materializing. And how much is your your views on this affected by the fact that Russia really is a nuclear power. Uh, even though we've kind of decided that's off limits, we're not going to go there. But but it it seems that in, in, in the event of political necessity for Putin, you're, at least we should take that into consideration. Some people are saying, eh, you're overdoing this. He's never going to use nukes. It would be the end of him, the end of us. It's not going to get there. We have to assume that that's not going to happen. And you're not one of those people. Explain to me why you think Putin might use a nuclear weapon in this context. Well, what, what would lead him to do that? Well, I, I think he probably won't, even if we push him further. But when you're talking about a truly apocalyptic outcome, you know, nuclear war, even slight increases in small probabilities are unacceptable. I mean, it, it, it would be egregiously irresponsible for an American president to increase the chances of all out nuclear war from two and a half percent to three percent. That's just, you know, because, you know, it, it's like a stock portfolio. Your, your expected return is, you know, what the you know, what, what the payoff will be times the chances that you'll get it. That's how you manage a stock portfolio. The opposite is how you should manage a risk portfolio. You know, in our lives, that's what we actually do. We, we take, you know, great pains to minimize the chances of catastrophic outcomes. And we're more casual with minor risks like, you know, cutting your finger or breaking your, your arm or something. Right. So, yeah, the amount I pay in flood insurance right now for this little cottage right on the beach is enormous. Right. Because uh, it's a flood. But, the risk, but, it, but still, the risk is tiny. It is tiny. Right. It's never been flooded. But I'm mandated to have that insurance and it's a fortune. So I, I, I take that point. But here's, here's the, the inverse of that, which is two things. One is, is the Western Europe's attitude. 
towards this conflict. Now, obviously, there are gradations of enthusiasm, reluctance. You go from, I think you probably count the UK as the most passionately, demonstrably supportive of Ukraine, mainly because Boris has got his Churchill thing going and <laughs> also because he needs, he, he needs to, he needs to whatever, stop talking about having parties during COVID. So, and it's been his way of, but he's there and there's no question about it. The British have sent huge amount of weaponry, a lot of support. Germany, not so much. Hungary, obviously the other end of the, the spectrum. But I don't know whether you brought yourself to read Tom Friedman's column this morning, but he's, what he's arguing is that Western Europe has now internalized this and sees this as an attack on, and that's why there's been such a really quite extraordinary resurgence of NATO's solidarity in the last few months. Yeah, I, I think. Do you I think mean, the Western I, Europeans are going to stay in this position? Are they going to are they going to realize at some point? No, we we we, we can't push this so far. I, I mean, first of all, I think they're confused if they think there is a you know some kind of significant likelihood of Putin choosing to extend the war into Western. Europe. That, now, that, it's the kind of thing we need to guard against. We, not, we need to not create, do things that would make that more likely. But I, I don't think it's very likely as things stand. As for their attitude, it's hard to say, you know, because the economy, you know, if inflation, you know, grows, you know, political winds may change. I, I don't know. I I, one thing I resist is framing this as some kind of part of some kind of larger struggle between autocracy and democracy. I'm kind of against that framing generally. For me, the big thing is that he invaded a sovereign country. That's illegal, period. I think if you start trying to frame it in, in these more sweeping ideological terms, you run into a lot of problems. First of all, on close inspection, Ukraine is not a paragon of liberal democracy. There's that. Second, I, I think this whole monarchian struggle that Biden seems intent on creating between democracies and autocracies globally becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, you, you know, the Wall Street Journal did a good reporting piece on that, you know, that moment at the Beijing Olympics where Putin and Xi Jinping came together and declared that there were no limits to their friendship. And this was right before the Ukraine invasion. And so it kind of made it hard for China to be anything but implicitly supportive of the invasion. The journal did a good piece on that, on why China wanted to make such a big show of their unity. And according to the journal, a big part of it was that we had just had this big summit of democracies and declared that we're the good nations. You don't get to come because you're a bad nation. And it pissed them off. and and. And it's the same with the sanctions regime that tends to accompany this war on autocracy and authoritarianism. Sanctioned countries are going to naturally get together and try to help each other out. And so I think we're just, you know, we're we're, we're creating this thing that doesn't have to be this global war, you know, Cold War II, and the planet really can't afford it because I think there are too many problems that the world's nations actually need to get together and cooperate on. Climate change is one. It's far from the end of the list. Bioweapons is a huge problem. Bioweapons proliferation. You cannot control biological weapons amid another truly frigid Cold War. You need more transparency than that. You need more in the way of formal international agreements. I could go on and on. Weapons in space, AI arms race, and so on. When I go back and I look at my own errors on Iraq, 
and elsewhere during the heyday of neoconservatism. The one thing, one lesson I learned is that turning these things into a Manichaean struggle between freedom and tyranny as an organizing structure misses so much of the actual granular detail of the reality that we misunderstand what we're doing and, and therefore we take flawed actions. But what I'm kind of amazed is that that, that sort of most associated with neoconservatism in the Cold War is now really a central idea, animating, animating idea for the Democratic Party. And yeah. that the Democratic Party has, especially over the 2016 election and Putin's alleged or Trump's relationship with him, have come to be a more monolithically militaristic and sort of neoconservative party than you could argue the Republicans are. I mean, the Republicans are still pretty solid in the Congress on aiding in Ukraine, but it's the one party where there really is serious dissent on this and some conversation about that. Mm. Does that surprise you? Uh, in, is, have the, why are the Democrats suddenly neocons again? I think, well, I think the roots of it go pretty far back. I think, you know, Madeleine Albright, Clinton Secretary of State, had tendencies like that, you know, kind of democracy promotion as a prominent part of our agenda. I think that, you know, with Bush, then you had true, true neoconservatives. But Obama had, you know, a number. He, he had a big strain of that. You know, the Victoria Newland story from 2014 is... I think an important one in, in Ukraine. Let's, well, mean, let's remind our readers what yeah, that yeah, story I, I is. Because it's enough. a really, it's an important facet of this. I, I never, the one thing that in which all my warning bells, when I found out that I didn't know this, that she's actually married to Robert Kagan, that, that the principal, one of the principal architects of the Bush foreign policy is his wife is now in the de in, in in a democratic administration pursuing very and was in Obama's and and, yes. and and so yeah 2014 so remind what happened in yeah it's with, it's with worth them. revisiting because one thing people say if you say that NATO expansion and specifically extending future membership to Ukraine was a mistake is they say, well, wait a second, Putin invaded Crimea after 2014. That was more about Ukraine's membership in the EU and Putin resisting that and and so on. So I, I think the whole story is worth telling because I think that was another policy misstep on our part. Okay, so what happened was Ukraine was flirting with a kind of associate membership of the EU. I think a lot of Ukrainians wanted to do it. The, the Ukrainian president at first seemed favorably disposed. Putin offered Ukraine a bunch of subsidies and so on to not in part because I think it would have come at the expense of some close economic ties between Russia and Ukraine. And also, you know, because of yeah the more general geopolitical aspiration to keep Ukraine in his sphere of influence and all that. So anyway. And, and Russia was trying to create the sort of free trade zone of its own, a rival to the right. EU. Uh, a a kind like of a Russian a, union of, of, you know, Russian speaking, whatever. Like Belarus, Ukraine. Yeah. A kind of yeah. sad, in some ways, pathetic rival, <laughs> but still. So that was the concept. And so he yeah. saw Ukraine being lured by the West into this other option, mm. which would have meant essentially the EU would have a, that kind of boundary with Russia right in Ukraine all the way past Kiev. That's, a, that's kind of... Now, 
you, is Ukraine really European? I mean, I know they're in the Eurovision Song Contest, but so was Israel for that matter. But, but it feels as if if they weren't European before, Europe itself, the European people have actually adopted them in a way at this point. And that's going to be a hard thing to undo. Yeah, I mean, culturally, I don't know. You could, you know, some people say Russia is naturally a part of Europe. And, and I certainly think one of our failures is to not successfully integrate Russia into the kind of the European sphere, at least vaguely after the Cold War. But, you know, I don't know, but Putin certainly found it threatening. And one thing I'll say is I, I think, you know, good strategists, you know, if you're going to do a good job of foreign policy, it doesn't just matter what the objective reality is. It matters how the other players are viewing things, how you're how your adversaries and enemies are viewing things. You need to stay mindful of that. And, and as we describe what then transpired in Ukraine in 2014, I'd encourage people to keep that in mind, just how things looked from Putin's point of view. So Putin makes this bid, you know, and the president swings his way. I don't think he was a deeply pro-Russian president, as he's sometimes called, but Putin persuaded him. I don't know if Putin paid him under the table as well. Who knows? But in any event, he offered a lot of subsidies to Ukraine. And the guy says, OK, the EU thing is on hold. And by the way, Putin had asked the EU to to do some kind of special deal, take into account Russia's interests. There was a specific thing that would have involved the IMF. The EU didn't want to do that. There, there was no attempt made to kind of, on the one hand, move Ukraine toward the EU. On the other hand, preserve ties with Russia through some kind of special arrangements. None of that was done. OK, so. After the president of Ukraine rejects the EU, there are protests in Ukraine by people uh, who wanted EU membership. And I think those were genuine, but they did uh, get a certain amount of kind of conspicuous American support. And in fact, there had been American support all along. OK, the, the, and, and again, this is something Putin would be really focused on. You know, American Western NGOs, you know, they 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 support these new media institutions in Ukraine that are pro-Western and that are agitating for EU membership. The U.S. Embassy supported, funded some of these things. And then while the protests are happening, Victoria Nuland, who was in the Obama State Department, comes in and, you know, kind of conspicuously passes out cookies to the protesters, clearly signaling American support. But I think I think the, the, the one of the big things that happened that probably drove Putin nuts is that, you know, Russians were tapping whatever phones they could tap. So happened that Victoria Newland's phone was one of them. She was having a conversation with the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. And, and I should stop and say, you know, what what ultimately happened is that there was a violent overthrow of the president. Some people call it a revolution. Some people emphasize the American role, call it a coup. I'm agnostic. But there's no doubt. And, and there are disagreements over who fired the first shots and so on. There's the Western narrative, the other narrative. What we know is that the Russian, I mean, the Ukrainian president fled for fear of his life as his opponents roamed the streets with guns. OK, now. In the run up to that, there was this phone call and you can go listen to excerpts with the, which the Russians helpfully provided and uh, and see the, the transcript. And Victoria Newland is talking with the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine about who should uh, lead the government after the transition of power. They're having this discussion about the pros and cons and so on. They say, I think Yats is the guy. He should be the, you know, the interim prime minister, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, after the, after the overthrow, that happens. He's the guy. Everything, just as they called it on the phone, it happens. Now, 
I, I, I'm not an expert on this. I don't, I don't know when you call something a coup. I don't know how important those calls were, but I do know if you're Vladimir Putin, you're not happy about this. And there's, there's one other thing we have to call attention to about Crimea. Well, two things. I mean, uh, and again, none, none of this is to excuse the invasion of Crimea, but we need to understand what happened. Two things. Crimea had been part of Russia, even within the Soviet Union, until the 1950s when Khrushchev, who not coincidentally was from Ukraine, gave it to Ukraine. The, the, so there's that. Historically, Crimea had just been part of Russia, overwhelmingly ethnic Russian. The, the exception was actually uh, not Ukrainians. It was the Tatars, the exception to ethnic Russian ethnicity there. Then the other thing is that in Crimea was this really important Russian naval base. Okay, the, I, I think the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet or something. Very important. After the breakup of the Soviet Union, they had maintained access to it via a long-term lease. Well, once the president who was deemed pro-Russian is overthrown, and by the way, the first thing, one of the first things that the new parliament did after that is demote the status of the Russian language in eastern Ukraine. You know, a lot of things happened that would naturally make Putin worry about the future status of that naval base. And here the and here. The, the prospect of future Ukrainian NATO membership becomes important. He's going to factor that in when he's asking himself, wait a second, is this really a secure lease I have on this naval base? And there were Ukrainian politicians, I think, openly talking about taking it away. So I think, you know, so the invasion of, of Crimea, that's the big deal. That, that started kind of, you know, that was the first big breach by him of international law with respect to Ukraine. So I think it's worth going back and asking, could things have been done differently? I can imagine a lot of ways they might have been creative solutions to the EU problem, not having Victoria Nuland pass out cookies and, and, and really just, you know, letting nations handle their own affairs, not thinking it's our business to decide who should lead the Ukrainian government. After a coup slash revolution, whatever you want to call it. I mean, so if, you, if we now assume that Putin, let's be cognitive empath cognitively empathetic for a second. Um, Which you naturally are, by the way. I want to compliment <laughs> you. I mean, I really, I really recommend that Ann Eiffelbaum podcast to people. Th thank you. A lot of people thought I, I lost that argument rather badly, but I don't, I think. Well, that... she's slippery. She's slippery. We should, we should she's get her in a room with the two of about, us. She's very passionate about this stuff in a way that, I mean, she apologized at the beginning of the podcast because we'd had a slight argument at a dinner party and she basically shouted me down. She's very, very animated on this topic. Um, now where was I going with that? We uh, said if you want to exercise cognitive empathy. Yes. We now know, for example, that one of Putin's assumptions in launching this war was that the Ukrainian people would be psyched to have the Russians come in and liberate them. I mean, that's at least some, I think he seems quite surprised and shocked that there's so much extraordinarily passionate resistance. So if one imagines that he then saw, he thought of Ukraine like that, and then saw the Americans coming in, deposing by violence, pro-Russian president, and, and sees the United States and indeed Western Europe egging Ukraine on to become essentially a kind of Western European country and reject, I, you can understand on top of which there is this, as we now know, and I, this, I'm not sure about it. I mean, the Russians, as I understand it, right? Talk to Sam Romani about this. I talked to, I've, I've tried to understand this better. How deep in the psyche of the Russians is some kind of ownership or unity with Ukraine? And 
some of it because of Dugin and the the new reactionaries in Russia is obviously bullshit has been kind of whipped up and engineered in ways that I think are misleading in, in the but it's not without any origins at all. I mean, I think of Solzhenitsyn, for example, who is our hero of of of, of human rights, who was appalled by the idea that Ukraine could ever be separate from Russia. That the the other thing we we what's fascinating to me and and uh, is that many of the the most punished and persecuted dissidents under the Soviet Union are, are, are now strong nationalists, pro-Putin, do not believe in the independence or separation of Ukraine. In other words, it's a lot more complicated than some of us think. And I also think the other question is the psyche of a humiliated country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, when you look at European history and you ask yourself, what good has come from countries that have been humiliated, by which I mean not just defeated, but humiliated. Now, Nazi Germany was defeated, humiliated, destroyed, then occupied and rebuilt from the ground up. But post-World War I Germany, which was in which very similarly the Western powers really decided we're going to punish this country mm-hmm. and we're going to make them pay for what they did. That was a disastrous long-term policy. However, justified, it might have been morally at the time, although I think it was a little iffy at the time. But again, once you fight wars, both sides have to have some idea of why they won, of, of what they achieved, if they're going to make, make peace of some kind. Uh, yeah, I and- worry that the war itself, the experience of the war in Ukraine, has created a new situation in Ukraine, in which you, Putin has created the very thing he tried to avoid, which is a strong sense of Ukrainian nationality, forged in this sharp distinction from Russia, that the Ukrainians have changed. I mean, some of them were already there, but others have lost. And I don't. I wonder whether a Ukrainian leader would have the ability politically to hand over a big chunk of his country. And I can't imagine. I can't imagine the number of op-eds in the West with the word Munich in them. If we ever did that, this is this is for many people the Sudetenland. This is for many people appease, literal appeasement because you are allowing an act of aggression and occupying a part of a country to stand. How do you best counter that? Because I, 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 from the Ukrainian point of view, let's be cognitively empathetic there. They're having brutal war and murder rained upon them by this. How do you expect them to say, okay, we'll give you a little bit? Well, first of all, as for the Ukrainian people, I don't know exactly what they're thinking. Different people are thinking different things. I'm sure there there are some who are absorbing serious punishment and aren't in the Donbass who are thinking, look, if this will end the war, give them the Donbass. I don't doubt that. I don't think we have a super clear reading on what the Ukrainian people think. And it will change as the war unfolds. You know, as I said, I would share your regret at leaving Putin with anything at all in this case. But I'd add, you know, by way of positive reinforcement, but I'd add two things. One, I've already added, it is a nuclear power. We have to think about the fate of the world and of Europe more broadly and so on. But the other is that, you know, whether this will be considered a success, there are a lot of places where he's paying a big price. He does not want Finland and Sweden to be part of NATO. You know, he, he, he will wind up with surrounded by a NATO that has more in the way of American arms and troops than it had before, and that it has in, and whose 
countries have increased their military budgets and so on. So, and, and who knows what sanctions will still be left. So I think it's, you know, you can imagine a scenario where he hangs on to the Donbass and this is just not viewed as a, as a triumph. But it's it's a very difficult situation. And, you know, I, I I'm wish just trying away to imagine how it ends. The world what, to what do you think is the most likely end result of this? Uh, and what Because it it's seems hard to, me to that, imagine. I know it's what I'm concerned about is the fact that the ratcheting effect of threat counter threat has it's it's very pre-World War One. It's it, there's just something about the rearming of of Europe, the sending of large arms into Europe against a country that is there. I mean, I remember Obama's, I, I'll paraphrase it, which is that you have to remember that Russia's always going to have more interest in what happens in Ukraine than we will. Mm-hmm. And that was his attempt to say, if you want to fight them, don't fight them right there. That's, that's, that's something where they will always be. And that's the other thing the Germans are saying and thinking. They're thinking, we have to deal with this giant country that is there, that's possibly belligerent. Now they've tried blandishments they've tried cooperation but none of that has worked but they can't i don't think they want to go into a a, a place of permanent deep tension in which war could break out at any moment the fact that we're emotionally invested in this now like even americans it's such a classic david and goliath situation in which in which david has pulled off an early win and so it's very hard for us to say let's hope it's a compromise there's just something psychologically difficult there absolutely is. I, I'm, and I myself, having had doubts about some of this, having been worried about the way we treated Russia, nonetheless found myself, as any I think normal human being would, moved by the Ukrainian response, instinctively want to support the victims of aggression and. Zelensky has been quite brilliant in his global PR in ways that in ways that have really dramatized the situation for ordinary people. And he seems such a pleasant, such a sort of amazingly, it's like Stephen Colbert is running a country or something, which is literally not far off what has happened. And that has appealed to lots of in other words, I think if Biden engineered some kind of deal, he he it wouldn't be that popular. He would, he would, he would have, he would have a lot of dissent on the right and left. The right will do the normal, cynical, loser, appeaser, weak, blah, 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 blah. But the left would also be you've betrayed this plucky little country. Maybe, Bob. So, how do you think we reconcile that tension between our psychological wanting of Ukraine to win and triumph? I mean, I would no doubt feel terrific thrill if I saw the Russians turned out of of the Donbass region and, and, and thrown out of where they have taken. It would just give me emotionally and psychologically a thrill. There's no question whose side I'm on in this sense. And if yeah. it comes to then saying, okay, we're going to settle, how do we reconcile that? What's, how do we persuade people that this is actually the, the better way to, to, to do this? Well, first of all, I would recommend savoring that satisfaction just in case nuclear apocalypse immediately descends <laughs> upon you. So enjoy that moment. But I think, you know, For me, I feel exactly the same tension between wanting to punish Russia and not wanting to irresponsibly court risk of something much worse than what's going on. And I guess one reason I don't feel more insistent 
on punishing Russia is that the U.S. does not itself have a, a, a great history of compliance with international law. In other words, if we had a spotless record, if we had not invaded Iraq, violation of, of international. In fact, it's worth going back one more glance at, 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 at Putin's point of view just quickly. In 2007, at that point, he had not committed any transporter aggression. OK. And he gave a speech at the Munich Security Conference pointing out that the U.S. had flagrantly violated international law in Iraq. In his view, and many people agree with this, in 1999, when we bombed Serbia over Kosovo, which isn't to be confused with the Bosnia intervention in the earlier 90s, which I supported and which was legal because it had the support of the UN Security Council. But he went on and on about how irresponsible the U.S. was being. He also complained about NATO expansion. It was an implicit warning that if we continued to run roughshod on the world, he was going to, to join us. And the fact is that we continue to not take international law very seriously. I mean, right now we have troops in Syria. Syria doesn't want them there. Technically, that's a violation of international law. We, we, we just don't think. That's the thing. The U.S. does not think seriously about international law, except when there's somebody we don't like who does something we want to punish them for. And in this case, I agree. They should be punished. But I think we need to clean up our own act as well. I think the end of the Cold War was a huge opportunity to cultivate an environment of respect for international law. And, and the first Bush administration, George H.W. Bush, actually showed signs of wanting to do that, but in any event, wound up not happening. I think it's critical that we, that we try to do that and get the world to a place where, where the, the norm is to settle disputes over islands and things through international tri tribunals and so on. But, you know, our own checkered at best history with compliance with international law does make it harder for me to say, yeah, we should go ahead and risk nuclear war to punish them for doing something that, oh, by the way, we've done repeatedly. Yeah, I think in that respect, too, the toppling of Gaddafi um, was, we are told, psychologically very potent for Putin. Similarly, the Ukrainian coup slash revolution that got rid of another leader. He's, he doesn't like looking at places and seeing despotic rulers suddenly thrown out of office by, and so the Arab Spring was also a little nerve wracking for him, I'm sure. But we, we did nothing to assuage that. And there, I do think that there's, that there is a strain of ant, just Russophobia in certain quarters that now i understand why polish people have russophobia it's, it's completely rational but there's a level i remember this is a this is between you well we may remember this i was running the republic when the cold war ended basically and it was a conversation i had with marty actually and i said well isn't it great that we can now treat russia just as a great power again and we can maybe have some relationship with them we can rebuild he's like what are you what are you talking about? It's like, it's like Russia is inherently the enemy. You never trust these people. They are even this goes back, of course, to understanding the, the hideous anti-Semitism, the pogroms, and the and the brutality of the of 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 Russia itself before the communist era. But I do get that feeling that unlike even Germany, other country, other powers, we just don't respect it uh, in some kind of way. And they obviously 
pick up on that. Well, um, there's also what you said earlier, which I didn't pick up on, which was that during the Trump years, you know, the kind of the resistance perceived Trump as having been elected with the help of the Russians. I think that was overstated. But in a retrospect, you know, there was no smoking gun in Russiagate and so on. But but I think that did have a big impact. Mm. And, and so whereas traditionally most of the fire for conflict with Russia might have come from the right, I think, you know, a lot of it comes from the left as as a kind of residue of the Trump years. I think you're right about that. Let's talk a little bit. I don't know whether you read Chris Caldwell's uh, New York Times essay on Putin uh, a couple of years ago. It's essentially saying what's happening is that we are creating a situation in which certain countries, on the basis of a kind of social conservatism as well as a nationalism, a notion that we're you, you could you could see this also happening in Hungary, for example. That that, that and certainly this is the narrative the Russians are putting out there that we have normal old-style countries that are maintaining normal moral values, traditional moral values, traditional notion of the nation-state controlling its own affairs, not globalist, patriotic, and that the EU is basically symbolized in this worldview by a, a, bearded, trans, a, a bearded trans person winning the Eurovision Song Contest like five years ago. That, that, that this is what's motivating and animating Orban in Hungary, that, that that this notion that there are the old school nations up against these new super liberal globalized countries that are in some kind of moral war between traditional values and contemporary values and also between the nation state and globalism and that this is playing into Putin's hands in a way. I think Chris went way too far in this piece, but I'm going to try and have him on again and talk him through this stuff. But I see on the right, in America, a growing fondness for this kind of regime. As you saw CPAC going to Budapest, you see this strong leader enforcing moral values. Well, you know, what is DeSantis portraying himself as in Florida except this? We're going to stamp out this, this gay rot, this, this trans nonsense, blah, blah, blah. How, how, I don't want to see the world. <laughs> move into those blocks because I think the world is more complicated than that. And I don't, and I, but this is, it's rather like the polarity within the United States, the world polarity between some kinds of regimes and others seems to be deepening and making things even more intractable. How, how would you respond to that? I, I think there's a lot of truth there. You know, I try to stay kind of tuned into kind of pro-Russia channels just to find out what's going on there. Just the way I used to listen to Steve Bannon's podcast during the Trump years. Russians with attitude? Yeah, Russians yeah. with attitude. And and they the, the discourse you hear there, that's it's both an occasional podcast and a prolific Twitter feed. And sometimes they sound like Trumpists to me. You know, it's it's there's a, a certain amount of make Russia great again there, and and quite an aversion to these well-educated cosmopolitan Russians who left the country in a huff after the invasion of Ukraine. You see very much the same tension. Their feeling is, well, great. You identify more with Western Europe anyway. Why don't you go live there? there Putin there is... said that in so many words, right? He, he, he oh, yeah. passed out of these people. In even harsher words. And, and there is a lot of that Trumpist spirit. And you also see it, as you suggested, in the, you know, kind of Rod Dreher's Twitter feed, for example, and in terms of the American parts of the Christian right and, and a certain fondness for what's going on in Hungary. I, I you know, 
you mentioned my book, Non-Zero. Part of the, I, I think part of the tension the world is going through generally right now is, is that there are forces pushing toward moving us toward a more global form of organization. And part of that is these, you know, resented coastal elites in America actually, as accused by people in the heartland, feeling more of a cultural affinity with European, well-educated Europeans than they feel with people in the heartland. I think that's an accurate accusation. And I think, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see more networking among the aggrieved nationalists in these different countries. That's what you're seeing when 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 CPAC goes to Hungary. Or well, you see not... T-shirts, the National Republican National Convention saying, I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat. Yeah. And, and I, I want to say it's not impossible that this plays out constructively. You know, it, it, in other words, you have people in a lot of countries who feel neglected and aggrieved by their elites. That's not a healthy situation. And if they find some solace in bonding with people in other countries in ways that are not devoted to, you know, conspiring to commit violence and, and stuff, that may be good. In addition to that, you know, there are actual policy issues that can play out at the international level. Trade agreement, like the WTO, you know, you can you can lobby for a kind of slowing down the, you know, subduing the relentlessness of the global capitalist machine. The best place to lobby for that, if you want to lobby for it, is the WTO. If you want to slow down the rate at which trade is, you know, eating up traditional jobs in various countries, there are international fora where it makes sense to do that. NAFTA or whatever they call that now is one of them. Trump actually did a little of that, by the way, in terms of his own revisions to NAFTA. So, you know, I guess I think you're I think you're exactly right. I think it's not impossible that these energies ultimately are manifest in a in an organized international way that isn't ultimately destructive. That's my hope. But my worry is mm -hmm. that essentially and, and this would be my my critique in some way of and I'll. I'll I remember, I actually vividly remember you writing the New Republic editorial in favor of NAFTA, which I don't know whether you recall, we started on the front cover. You um, did, yes. It was, it was a, it was a, it was a, as always, a, a brilliant piece. But when I look back at that, and I understand the free trade arguments, I think we vastly underestimated the cultural and social impact of this in terms of how it would reorder American society in ways that would be damaging to the fabric of our country and to its, its unity. Do you, in retrospect, think things happen a little too quickly? Do you think that, as Mearsheimer would say, that giving China this incredible opportunity was actually the dumbest, dumbest thing we ever did in our lives? No, no superpower has ever either aided and abetted the rise of a, a rival. And do you think that our non-zero passion for free trade missed important aspects of human psychology and important dynamics in how societies hold together? Well, I think, you know, things happened too fast. I, I don't agree with Mearsheimer that we should view 
as he seems to view relations with China in a fundamentally zero sum way. I think we, you know, we have to, for the sake of us all, work things out together in ways that are good for both countries. NAFTA, of course, nominally had labor accords, but they were pretty nominal. I, I think the goal now should be to strengthen them. And, and as I said, Trump did this kind of interesting thing where in order for cars to qualify under NAFTA, a certain percentage of them or something had to be built in factories with a with a minimum wage of, or average wage or something of something like $16. I don't know. The details don't matter. Doesn't even matter if it had very much impact. But it was an interesting case where a kind of left-wing Mexican government was fine with that. And our workers were fine with that. And that's the kind of thing I, I think we need to be much more attentive in trade agreements to, you know, conditions for American workers. At the same time, I think, you know, we've overstated the role of trade compared to, say, automation. And, you know, there's only so much you can do unless you want to return to or, or, or create a world of almost complete protectionism, which I don't think is healthy. I think but a little, a little, uh, a little mitigation could go a long way. It seems to me. A little. Yeah, and also the sense that that we care and we're paying attention. And, and, yeah. and But again, I mean, j just creating. Uh, Do you think Biden has given the impression that he cares about that? Do you think Biden himself has done a decent job with? Let's just let's stick for a minute with Ukraine. Well, I mean, on the I mean, I honestly think if Trump had said on two occasions. This guy is a war criminal. He needs to go. And then the staff have to come in and say, no, that's not what we're saying. Or if, if, if a leading official in the Trump administration said, our goal is the long-term weakening of Russia, which is what the, I think the Joint Chief of Staff Chairman the, said. The Secretary of Defense. Secretary, well, one of them said that. And that's, that strikes me as incredibly reckless, mixed messaging. It was. You know, it's, it's exactly Putin's narrative. You know, he wants to depict this thing as America versus him. That's the way he wanted to depict the 2014 revolution. And we keep helping him out in these narratives. That is a very reckless way to talk. Biden has said things. But, you know, when Biden said Putin must go. So, yeah, that's, you know, there hasn't been a lot of message discipline out of the Biden White House. And, you it know, Biden himself is part of the problem. Message discipline is one thing. Message discipline with a nuclear armed foe in an armed conflict. Right. is incredibly important. And and he promised competence. That was not competence. I'm sorry, it was not competence. It's him being classically Biden and, and talking out loud when he really should know better. Well, and I think, you know, it's gotten a little worse. He's, he's, he's not as young as he was. Now, we're probably going to have Republican majorities in the House and Senate pretty soon. What happens in, let's say, next, this time next year or next, this time early next year, when inflation is still tough in Western Europe, especially cost of energy is going through the roof for most people, where the file of FASTA thesis, as Mickey would point out, means that people are then bored by this subject. What are we doing in Ukraine again? We, we, we miss that sudden drama, that good and evil drama we had in that, that mini scene. Now we're in this long slog. It seems to me that I wouldn't, and with Republicans in control, I just don't know how they're going to develop on, on Russia, whether they're going to say, stick to their, I think, absurd point that Trump's strength that prevented this and Biden's weakness has caused it, or whether they say, what do we, we, would they do with J.D. Vance and say, I just don't think we, ca we should care very much about Ukraine and what matters is inflation. 
and jobs. What do you think? I mean, uh, that's why I think this, this, all this rah-rah stuff has to be qualified to some extent. We, it's probably not going to continue. Yeah, well, there are Republicans who, who seem to want to run on this. I mean, Josh Hawley just had a piece which he, he, you know, he came out on, on that side of the issue. And I guess I, I guess Biden does have to worry about it. I, I don't really know. I agree with you. It's it's crazy to say Trump held them at bay. I mean, I think, you know, the, the I, I don't know. It depends on how the economy plays out. You know, if, if inflation is at 12 percent, I think there's going to be limited tolerance for maintaining really costly sanctions on Russia. It'll be interesting to see what happens with China. You know, Biden has held on pretty much to the Trump tariffs on China. And that would be one way to relieve inflation was to change that. And, and you've heard you've heard noises about that. But I don't I don't know. It's a it's but a the food thing. crisis that's looming because of this, because of the blockading of Ukraine, that is going to that's also going to create stories around the world in which poor people primarily are going to be starving, going to be yeah. hungry, are going to be desperate. And we are going to be complicit in their starvation. We and the Russians, I mean, the sanctions contribute to the problem in various ways, and the Russian blockade contributes to the problem in obvious ways. And of course, just the fact of war reduces the, the yield, the harvest. And that you would hope that that would put pressure on to kind of wrap this up. But I, I also don't know how exactly that will play out. And I don't know how you end a Russian blockade forcefully without things possibly getting out of hand either. I, but I, I literally don't know. I'm not an expert. We've been talking almost entirely about Ukraine, which I think is what I wanted to talk about with you. But to broaden things a little, I, I wanted to also refer to your book, Why Buddhism is True. How much has your views, have your views on things like this, international relations, even domestic policy, come from rooted in a Buddhist mindset? It's a good question. I mean, I guess I could say this wouldn't be entirely true, but I, in principle, one could say that a Buddhist perspective leads uh, to the kind of perspective I've outlined in the sense that the Buddhist ideal of enlightenment, right, that you are in principle moving toward if you, you know, whatever, meditate religiously and do various other things, it's a perspective of, among other things, a kind of detachment, a kind of objectivity. It, it would, in principle, make you uh, better at understanding the way things are viewed from all perspectives in the world. Because, for one thing, it would subdue the emotional impediments to doing that. You know, exercising cognitive empathy toward enemies and adversaries is very hard. It can be hard with friends and kin and, and so on. I'm, I'm, I've been working on this and I, I'm probably going to write a book about it, but, but certainly with enemies like Putin, it's just not naturally easy to put yourself in his shoes and really understand the way things look and, and take account of that. In principle, well, let me put it this way. I think you've been to retreats, right? Have you been to like a week-long retreat? So at the I end went of to a 10-day retreat at okay, the... So at, inside, at, inside at the IMS, yeah with, yeah, with Joseph Epstein. Yeah, so I don't know, your mileage may vary, but at the end of something like that, I personally feel much, cl somewhat closer to the ideal I just described. In other words, 
I just have, I look around and I just see people more like as people and not like, oh, is this guy an asshole? Is he a threat to me? Could this guy be a friend? Is this blah, blah, blah? It's just like, uh, it's a more remote, detached view. So there is, there is that. Now, and that's a view, surely, though, Bob, that would lead one possibly towards reality, would it not? I mean, here you are, you're looking uh, at world history, you, you are somewhat in balance, you, you see the follies of human history, mm -hmm. you, see the, you see the continuation of things like nationalism, the potency of waging war, the fears of modernity, all these things crowd in. And to be able to put those to one side and see the long view which is also the heart. That's also something that comes, I think, from a, a more mindful approach to international relations. Well, I think so. You know, Buddhist ethics is kind of implicitly utilitarian. And, and there's a tremendous emphasis on compassion and, you know, on, on reducing, if not ending, human suffering. You know, that's central to Buddhist ethics. At the same time, the approach is kind of, as you suggest, one of, it's global and detached. So there isn't, so like right now with the Ukraine war, you're seeing a lot of emoting, like, you know, and honestly, I mean, you know, Twitter is just full of people who, you know, I'm kind of on their side. I agree that Putin is, is kind of the bad guy, but they just seem way too wrapped up in this to think clearly to be, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound too condescending, but well, let's not be, I will tell you this. I think the fundamental reason I completely messed up with Iraq was because of my feeling state. Yeah. Because I was enraged and traumatized by 9-11 in a way that just brought out all those things within me and every human that is protective. It felt violated. I wanted revenge. I wanted to do something to prevent this ever happening again. Even though in my mind's eye, if I thought about it, Obviously, I'm not, I can't, we can't prevent something ever happening ever again. So, and the, and the order we can solve this by going into Iraq, all these things were, were when I look back at my own thinking about, that was a period where I was not just wrong, but I was not, I didn't have the same perspective as I would normally have. But, and for reasons that were, I think, entirely human and, and mm -hmm. defensible. I mean, how could one not react to what happened on that day without emotion? But, but that's not good for statesmanship. It's, with me. it's just, it's, it's, yeah. you have to, as a statesman, you have to absorb that, use it or understand it, but you don't want to succumb to it. Yeah. Now, I would contrast two people who have been U.S. ambassador to Russia. One is Michael McFall, who, <laughs> if you follow his Twitter feed, you will find out. <laughs> oh, my a God. Very emotional guy. I would not Jesus. use him as a guide to anything. It's, he seems, frankly, sometimes borderline unhinged. The other is William Burns, who is now head of the CIA, who was ambassador to Russia. And in 2008, he sent a, uh, an email to Condi Rice saying, look, I've talked to everybody. And I've talked to a lot of people in the Russian national security establishment. It's not just Putin. Ukraine is a complete red line. And, and for good measure, this was several months before George W. Bush fatefully strong-armed European members of NATO into putting Ukraine on the membership list and, and extending a kind of invitation to Ukraine. For good measure, Burns sent uh, a memo for wider circulation to the Joint Chiefs, the whole uh, upper levels of the administration that was titled, it was about Ukraine, you know, <laughs> and the title was Nyet means Nyet. 
Okay, that was the title of the memo. He was trying to get their attention. Now, you know, you ask, like, what role does Buddhism play in my own worldview? Interestingly, you know, I was brought up, my father's in the army. So he moved around a lot. Uh, I've, I've always thought that kind of gave me a slightly more clinical view of human affairs and, and maybe made me better at seeing things from other points of view. Because you'd move to these places. I mean, it was all within the United States. But like you'd move from like a, a, mili a, a military, you know, you, you'd move from Virginia in 1968 to San Francisco, which I did. And it's like, whoa, this is different. I'm, I'm going to a, to a public school in, you know, an urban school in San Francisco in 1968. There were radical cultural shifts. And I, I, what's interesting to me is I was listening to Burns's memoirs. It's called The Back Channel. He was brought up in a military family. He says he thinks that made him better at seeing the perspective of different people. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know in either case whether that's true. And I'm certainly not always great at it. But I think he is very good at it and 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 traditionally that's been the, the that's been what a diplomat is that that's been essential to diplomacy and now you know you have people like mcfall and i think i would suggest maybe victoria newland who you know i'm just not sure that 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 this what should be maybe the core diplomatic skill is all that well honed i mean I don't know. I don't know as much about Newland. I know from just reading McFall's Twitter feed that this guy was not born to be a diplomat. And I don't know why he was in Russia. Of In the last hundred years, which president's foreign policy do you most admire? Well, I will say in that Burns memoir, he doesn't come out and say this because he is a diplomat. So he basically says nice things about everyone he's ever been associated with, except Dick Cheney. And he doesn't even say mean things about him. You have to read between the lines. <laughs> but but you can tell that he thinks in his within his career, the golden age of American diplomacy was the first George Bush. Yeah. James Baker as secretary of state. Very pragmatic. Baker, by the way, is the one who promised to the then Soviet leader that NATO would never go further than East Germany. You know, or what or a unified Germany, in other words. But, you know, you find very pragmatic, didn't do a lot of posturing, didn't do a lot of moralizing and preaching, which I think is is usually self-defeating. I, I don't I think Americans have almost no idea how annoying so much of the world finds our moralizing and our preaching and how for that reason. It is at best unproductive and maybe counterproductive. They're just sick of it. Because for one thing, our country doesn't look like it's doing all that great. It's like, who are we to be talking? But so I, in my, yeah, I, I think, honestly, Bush wasn't bad. He did do that Panama president snatching thing, which was a violation of international law, which I didn't approve of. But the Persian Gulf War was a legal war. He went to the Security Council. He set an important president, a precedent. You know, the, the, the Security Council had been gridlocked throughout the Cold War because both Russia and the U.S. have a veto. And, and Bush set this precedent of after the Cold War. Well, Saddam Hussein, they're clearly violated international law. He invaded Kuwait. And Bush said, let's do this the right way. Let's go to the Security Council, get the authorization. We did. So the Persian Gulf War, although it wound up having some consequences that, that 
that maybe weren't great that and that would have been hard to predict. It was a legal war, and and Bush, I think in that sense has fewer bad marks on his record maybe than than any president since then. I'm I'm not sure. What about before then? What about Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy? I mean, I think a good case could be made that Kennedy was by far the most reckless president in foreign policy, that, that, that the 62 missile crisis was absolutely terrifying and should never have been allowed to happen. That's, well, the, he, that's the president that came closest to blowing up the whole world. He did find a, a way out of that, even though some aides, I think his brother didn't even support that, as I recall. The, 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 the kind of, you know, the agreement that we would remove missiles from Turkey or something, which yes. uh, which we did under the table, which which defuse that thing. Yeah, I think he was probably pretty reckless. His defenders will tell you he wouldn't have gotten into Vietnam. But look, Eisenhower, on the one hand, had the wisdom to avoid uh, a lot of conspicuous entanglements. On the other hand, his the Dulles brothers, you know, Secretary of State John Foster and his brother Alan, who was running the CIA, they were they were cause, you know, they were they were doing shit all over the world that again, makes it seem ironic to Russia that we're preaching about, you know, the intervention in other countries' affairs because we were sponsoring coups left and right in ways that in retrospect weren't necessary. And and this is one reason I worry about a new Cold War. It just, it distorts your your vision and sabotages your agenda. And it was just wasted time. Bob, I want to thank you for spending this much time with me, for going through the difficulties of Ukraine at least complicating it so that we we don't fall into the ruts of thinking that we have in the past. And also being honest about the real trade-offs here, about the real the psychological agony, the, 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 the difficulty of resolving this satisfactorily. What I, what I do find in contemporary culture is an inability to embrace unsatisfied, unsatisfactory compromises that don't give you everything you want, that don't mm-hmm. make you feel good, but that might be necessary for the maintenance of some kind of peace and civil order. And that, that goes domestically as well in terms of things like accepting the results of elections or the results of jury verdicts. <laughs> it's just so common now not to, not to just say, well, we, all, we, we live in an incredibly diverse, and I don't mean that in the cliched way, I mean the way you talked about with your military brat childhood. This country has... For me, a foreigner coming here, it is, it is so many countries. It is the, a country that includes Seattle and Miami and Houston. I mean, I just don't know where to start. So that's my concern. But I think the way you bring calm and rationality, and I would also add humor to, 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 to these things, I'm, I'm grateful for. Well, thank you, Andrew. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm a fan of your podcast. I've been Thank waiting you. for that email from you, Andrew. You know, well, you, you know, you want to come on my podcast email. <laughs> Finally showed yeah, well, up. We have to, we're going to go on and talk about dogs. You want to talk about dogs, don't you? Well, I'm always that... up for talking about dogs. I mean, you I'm know, without I... mine for these few days because I had a weird travel thing where I went to LA and then flew directly to Boston and then came to P-Town. And my dish colleague, Chris Bodena, whom you may know, is bringing her up at the end of the week. But anyway. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Just one last thing. We have no ads. We put this out for free. I do that because I think the debate is important. We would really appreciate it if you're listening to this and not paying for it to give us a subscription. We're doing really well. We're nudging 20,000 paid subscribers. 
We would love to get there by our second anniversary. And we have some really wonderful guests. We're doing a live podcast next week with Jamie Kerchick, whose book, Secret City, which is the story of gays in power in Washington for the last 70 years, well, from, from, from the 30s up into the 90s, which is, I must say, reading it right now is extraordinarily good, good piece of work and, and illustrates the city I know and, and have seen change dramatically just in my lifetime. All those who came before us, long before Stonewall, who were running the country, in many cases, the most loyal and effective bureaucrats and thinkers and, 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 and workers were in, in Washington and were gay and were under this intense, constant pressure. Incredibly good book. I'll be reviewing it too, but, and more to come. So thank you, Bob, again. We'll see you all next week. Have a lovely, lovely early week of June. It's now raining in Provincetown, but it's, it's a glorious summer. It's, it's the first non-COVID summer where we're all going to get monkeypox instead. So let's live it up. Bob, thank you so much. Give my thank love to you. Thank you. All right. Cheers.